Man, it sucks to be Carter Riking. And how? Uncontrollable mutation institutionalized by his controlling father just wants someone to listen to him. Depowered and killed post-M day. Oh man, poor guy. Injected with Mr. Sinister's DNA as a child in hopes of creating a backup system if something happened to the original. Wait, how did... Haunted by his past and also sometimes haunted by a mysterious woman who showed up in his dreams to demand information about Gambit. Why would anyone do that? Oh, she was uh, working for New Sun. Oh, the, the dude who's a far future Gambit who pretty much destroyed his own universe. That's the one. And he showed up in Carter Riking's dreams. No, no, Fontanelle showed up in Carter Riking's dreams. She was just working for New Sun. And Fontanelle's the thief with the fox. No, the thief with the fox is Fantamelle. Fontanelle is a telepath. I guess that makes sense, what with the showing up in Dreams bit. And Cyclops and Havoc's great-great-aunt. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 201 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us, and to you, uh, and to uh, everyone, to our show. We had a very brief hiatus, and it was nice. It was great. We took a week off to celebrate not having been on trial at The Hague. Hooray! Um, but yeah, so this is episode 201. This is the first episode in our third podcast century. I'm pretty sure that's what that's called. Yeah, no, I was talking to my mom um, last night, and, and she said, happy 200th anniversary, and then we theorized about how the podcast would have sounded in, you know, the early 19th century, when instead of actually recording, we just went around from town to town telling people really loudly about the X-Men. That's not that different from what we're doing. We're just more efficient about it through the magic of technology. Isn't the internet great? Thank you, internet, for letting us ramble about the X-Men only once instead of having it to do it once per town. It would be an interesting job, just sort of taking it on the road and being like, have y'all heard about Mojo yet? <laughs> have you heard the good news about Chris Claremont? It would be great. Also, maybe abolish slavery and give everyone the vote. That's the thing about the past. It You're was, terrible. It was terrible, yeah. It was. It was super terrible. This is this is a thing that's been coming up recently because, yeah, because of the musical and because of the biography, people have been obsessively romanticizing and sort of lionizing Alexander Hamilton. And the thing is, all of the Founding Fathers were absolute assholes. I mean, they were fascinating assholes, but yeah, totally assholes. We are back in X-Men Volume 2, a.k.a. Adjectiveless X-Men, and uh, there's some stuff. We're going to be covering two two-part stories here, and then the next time we come back to this book, we're going to be in... Executioner's Song. That's right, Executioner's Song. A No, crossover. Miles, it's Executioner's Song. Come on, if you're going to say it, say it right. Okay, X. Cutioner's song, a crossover that we've both been very excited to get to. Now, I'm not going to say that Executioner's song is good, but boy howdy, is it fucking fun. It is kind of a Gordian knot of continuity, and specifically of Summer's family continuity, which we all know is my absolute favorite hill to fight and die on. And actually, the stuff, you know, the stuff we're talking about today. I'm pretty fond of too, because while these aren't the greatest arcs, one of them at least sows the seeds for what's going to be one of the more interesting and more complicated 
I'm trying to think of a, a good way to describe this more narratively appropriate retcons of the last 20 or so years. This is very, very true. So I vote we just dive on in. Okay, so we took last week off. The episode before, we were talking to Louise Simonson. Let's give folks a quick recap um, to get them caught up to speed to where, where we're picking up on the book. Previously on X-Men. In the Mojoverse, Longshot... You know, just listen to the previously on from episode 199. We basically covered everything we would cover here, there. And... Also, as a reminder, in episode 199, we referenced a one-panel flashback where Arise mentioned that Longshot and the Blue team would overthrow Mojo at some point. So, that's going to happen now. Meanwhile, at the X-Mansion, as a more general set of contexts, the Blue team continues to basically have all the popular characters doing all the popular things. Cyclops, Wolverine, Psylocke, Rogue, Gambit, Beast, and Jubilee. Cyclops has been having fluttery feelings in his... heart about Psylocke as of recently. Rogue and Gambit continue to flirt in varyingly entertaining and or creepy ways. And Wolverine, mostly in his own title, but a little bit in Adjectiveless X-Men, has been working with Professor Xavier to learn more about his mysterious and forgotten-by-him past. Which brings us to X-Men number 10, where happy little bluebirds fly. This and the next issue, uh, which form a, a short little two-part story, are written by Scott Lobdell, who, of course, has taken over more and more of the X-Books, as all the Image folks have left for, well, Image. And it's penciled by Jim Lee. This is actually the last story that Jim Lee is going to pencil for Marvel, and we'll talk more about why in a little bit. The issues are also inked by Scott Williams with Bob Wyacek, somebody else stater whose first name I don't know, and Dan Panosian. And we start, as we do, with a memoryless long shot being tossed around in circumstances beyond his control. Must be Tuesday. These circumstances are inside a house, which is tumbling about in, tor in a tornado, and then lands on the ground and also on, you know, a person who leaves only their boots sticking out from underneath. That's right, we are now in a Wizard of Oz pastiche for better and or for worse. Kinda. This is a really thinly set up premise. And it kind of bugs me because, yeah, there aren't a lot of times when I find myself going, you are half-assing this, Arcade would have done it better, but this is one of those times. And we keep coming back to that. I believe we touched on this a couple of episodes ago when we did Shattershot. The Mojoverse in the 90s is so much less interesting than it could be because you have two components of the Mojoverse, right? You have the obsession and fixation with pop culture, with television, with ratings, and then you have the incredibly surreal, psychedelic, hyper-violent, post-apocalyptic framework around it. And I kind of feel like you have to get both for it to really feel like the Mojoverse and for Mojo to really feel like Mojo. Yeah, the Mojoverse should be 2000 AD meets Looney Tunes. And... Every bit as biting as both of those. What it is now is sort of watered-down murder world. Um, in which... And this is... Is this the first time we've seen Mojo do a specific movie shtick? I mean, he's certainly referenced many, many specific movies. But in terms of focusing on one this hard, this is the first one that I can remember, at least. And I do kind of like the bits of the way it's done. I mean, Longshot quickly encounters the people that Dorothy quickly encountered, the Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, and the Tin Woodsman. But in this case... They're what? really just X-Men stand-ins. They're not even costumed. And again, you know, you mentioned the house dropping on somebody, and I figured that was going to be relevant, and it wasn't, and the shoes aren't relevant, and it's just... 
Yeah, if you're going to run with this idea, run with it. Right. But at least Scott Lobdell does do a fun job with the dialogue, as Cyclops the Scarecrow tells Dorothy, which is to say Longshot. Some people like to go that way, while others like to go this way. Of course, there are those who like to go both ways, but who am I to judge? And we've got uh, Wolverine in the perhaps unlikely role of the Cowardly Lion. You probably beat me up in grade school. Everyone else did. It hurt. Lots. I'd rather not talk about it. And Tin Man Rogue with uh, big metal restraints over her mouth and hands. Howdy, stranger. I'd shake your hand, but I can't. I can't touch anyone. Ever. Kissing is out of the question. And then Beast is Toto, because why the hell not? Except he's written like Scooby-Doo, and I feel like I should apologize in advance because I've never actually seen any Scooby-Doo. So my sense of how this is is just based on my peers occasionally imitating Scooby-Doo. So yeah. I mean, that was not bad, I gotta say. You got the Hank McCoy, you got the Scooby-Doo mixed together about 50-50. Well done, Jay. Okay. Anyway, like you said, this is just these characters in their regular appearances, and this is one of the parts where the story just seems to be half-assing it. I feel like you could actually do a brilliant Wizard of Oz take, and it being the Mojoverse, probably it would also be a take on like 12 different other pop culture properties, but instead it's just sort of the, the broadest of strokes. Like you said, it feels really more like Murder World. It doesn't feel like Murder World. Murder World would be playing up the Wizard of Oz stuff to the nines, the plot elements would actually be critical. The characters wouldn't just be cast in the roles, they'd be costumed for them. And the flying monkeys would definitely not just be brainwashed X-Men with little green wings. You know what I think I realized part of the problem is? I was going to get to this later, but this seems like a good time to bring it up. We got spoiled. The first couple of looks at Mojo World we got, in fact, the Mm. first quite a few looks at Mojo World we got, were drawn by first... Art Adams, and then Alan Davis, both of whom go into so much detail, add in so many little touches, so much deliberate, cutting, biting satire, and we don't get that here. Well, and then Brett Blevins in that amazing New Mutants story. Oh, right, because we found out that, uh, what was it, Megalopolis is technically a part of Mojo World. That was referenced later. Yeah, these are all artists who are not afraid to give two middle fingers to reality in the service of telling a more entertaining story. And the thing is, Jim Lee can do that. He just doesn't here. Yeah, he is, you know, honestly, I think he's phoning it in here. He is, he's not doing the stuff he's strongest at. He's not doing the stuff that'll sell the story. It just, and... The story's not quite enough to sell itself, which is a little frustrating because, again, it's hard not to look at these 90s mojo stories and see how much better they could have been and how much more potentially engaging. Too true. That said, there is some really genuinely good stuff here, so I want to talk about that too. Let's get back to the plot, which I do quite enjoy. All right. So while the heroes are, or, or at least while four of the heroes are making their way down the yellow brick road, Mojo has Xavier and the rest of the heroes um, restrained, and he is a villain splaining his villainous plan. 
because remember in Shattershot when we saw the mysterious shadowy figure who had totally different silhouettes depending on who was drawing him, who was starting a pirate network trying to steal the ratings from Mojo? Um, yeah, that's who Mojo's going after right here. He's trying everything he can think of to just draw all the ratings into himself. He wants them to, I don't know, probably snap their necks and then cackle about and then ask who snapped their necks because he's Mojo and I love him. I was gonna say ratings don't have necks, but this is the Mojoverse, so they actually might. Right. At least when they were drawn by somebody uh, other than uh, Jim Lee. Anyway, I do enjoy that he has Professor Xavier wired up a clockwork orange style with his mouth and his eyes just sort of held open by uncomfortable looking little paper clippy things like that. That is an image that totally fits the Mojoverse. And I do want to call these out when we see them because they're here. I just wish there were more of them. One of the tied-up X-Men here is Jubilee, who of course is talking back to Mojo because, you know, Jubilee. Gambit, for once being an adult in the room, shushes her by just saying, Jubilee. And I love her response. Why does everyone say my name like it means shut up? Scott Lobdell is starting to write like Scott Lobdell. I do genuinely enjoy his dialogue in this title. Mojo, in the meantime, is not done villain-splaining because he's Mojo and he loves doing that. He never met a flashback he couldn't make more horrifying by retelling it in creepy ways. He narrates over literal footage of what happened before because, of course, he records everything. Apparently, Dazzler, who was, of course, involved with, along with Longshot in the most recent failed rebellion in the Mojoverse, went back to Earth with a rebel named Meek to get help from the X-Men. And as you may recall, Dazzler was in the Mojoverse because she had gotten spit out of the Siege Perilous at Lila Cheney's house, and then Longshot had appeared suddenly and begged their help, and they'd gone off with him. There was some other stuff with Dazzler in the meantime, but yeah, that's the yeah. relevant part for now. That's the, that's the very rough arc, and that's why Dazzler's there, and that's why Lila's there. And this new character, Meek, yeah, Meek was totally a traitor working for Mojo, teleports them all back right in front of Mojo and Mojo's dog-faced guards, and there's a big fight. Unfortunately, as we know, teleporting to or from the Mojoverse without the aid of Spiral tends to make a person's brain go, go all woobly, and so our heroes fare very, very poorly in this conflict. As they are attempting to recombobulate themselves, Mojo is, is clearly, clearly winning the fight, yeah, and they, they do not stand a chance against uh, Mojo's uh, Jim Lee armored guards. These are as distinct from Wills Portacio armored guards, who would be much more cybernetic. Eh, don't worry, we'll see that style a couple issues from here. Yeah, that's the thing. Lee's art here. So we have gone on record on the podcast many times and talking about how much we love Jim Lee's art. But like you said, it's just so much more simplistic here. Honestly, what it reminded me of was those old X-Men Pizza Hut comics, which, don't get me wrong, Ooh. I love dearly, but they have this very simplified style that looks like it was just pulled from the cartoon instead of the inspiration for the cartoon. So unfortunate because I love Longshot. I love the Mojoverse. And then the 90s don't really do them any favors. It's okay, we'll have some good Mojoverse stuff later. Uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men messes with the Mojoverse, and that is goddamn delightful, even if it was decades from this point. So even though the X-Men are losing this fight, Cyclops keeps his wits about him and makes it to the control panel to up the ever-present-in-the-Mojoverse soundtrack, and, oh, Cyclops, you have never sounded more like the uncool dad. He has, but I'm going to get to that after this line. As Jubilee might say, it's time to pump up the jam. Scott Summers, I love you, but you are not cool. Decades from now, he's going to look straight at the reader when fighting Dracula and say, 
No more nickel and dime. Time to crank it up. Scott, no. No, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. It's a special moment. He's got kind of a lot of great lines this story. Mostly because, again, he's just straight up cartoon cyclops at this point. He is boring dad friend and... It's, it's kind of terrible, and I kind of love it. Well, he does have a good reason, at least for the action that inspired his boring dad line. The X-Men are hanging out with Dazzler right now. Dazzler can turn sound into ass-kicking, and indeed she does. She lasers the living crap out of all of the bad guys. Mojo, who knows Dazzler because she's been co-leading the Resistance, is not interested in playing along with this. Allison Blair, you have just been put on permanent hiatus! You're underestimating my comeback potential. I survived Dazzler the movie. I can survive your big-budget horror show. Now that is how you mojo-verse. You work in pop culture from within the pop culture and a new bit of pop culture. Yes, exactly this, and that's why I love Dazzler in the mojo-verse on the rare occasions that she's there. You also keep it questionably meta. You don't know whether she's referencing the movie Dazzler the movie or the comic, the, the Marvel graphic novel Dazzler the movie. Because honestly... Either way, it's kind of an amazing Jim Shooter burn. I love it so much. Like, oh, there's just like the gems of glory inside this story, and I treasure them and I savor them, because we're not going to see any Mojo stuff for quite a while after this, except for this one little Marvel fanfare story, which we should really cover at some point. Alas, Dazzler does not win this fight because Mojo has a trump card up his sleeve. He's got Longshot brainwashed and working as an armored guard, and he's able to catch Dazzler off balance and shoot her and drop her into the Mojo Fortress moat. A moat, a handy nearby moat. Oh, that's unfortunate. Well, anyway, let's cut back to the present, where the Oz heroes, you know, that being Longshot and the Tin Man, etc., finally get to Mojo's place and are promptly confronted by the brainwashed other X-Men, complete with bat wings strapped over their slightly ripped clothing, so I guess, like, take a, a sniff of a drink? Really appreciating the subtle notes of mahogany. Are you drinking furniture polish? I mean, let's be real. Depending on the quality of the whiskey you've got, eh, maybe it's not so far off. This is the early 90s. Mm, point, Oh, point. so clearly you should be drinking Zima. Right. Okay. I don't think Zima has subtle notes of mahogany. It just has subtle notes of drunk at 3 p.m. I was going to say, I'm not sure Zima has subtle notes of anything. Hmm. Probably true. Well, in an alley, meanwhile, Dazzler is not quite dead. This may just be because it's what the story called for, or it may be because, as you might remember, we've learned that Dazzler will never actually die. Wait, what kind of a moat has alleys? Um, I'd imagine the moat flowed into an alley. It was probably a a very wet alley. Like, you know how Batman's parents were killed in Crime Alley? This is like Moist Alley. Ew. Yeah, don't go into Moist Alley. Also, if you're trying to come up with a euphemism for your genitals or whatever, I recommend basically anything else. Also, we probably shouldn't call this episode Moist Alley, but I kind of want to. No. Okay, fine. It shall only live on forever in this MP3 on the internet in this five-second span. I suppose we'd best move on. Forever, yes. Um, so anyway, Dazzler, in an alley, is found not quite dead by a mysterious hooded person and, or actually mysterious hooded people, who are led by someone whose silhouette is probably not going to be wildly familiar considering that the silhouette of the person running the pirate network was entirely inconsistent. But anyway, this fellow instructs his henchpersons, Gently, men, gently. 
Treat her like the gold she is, for Dazzler is our best chance to pull the final plug on Mojo TV. Dude, I love your Mojo 2 voice. I love how much it contrasts with my Mojo 1 voice. I'd like to think that he's obnoxiously smooth. That sounds about right. Yeah, as Miles said, this this fellow is going to soon be revealed to be Mojo 2, the sequel, but we'll get to that in just a moment, because now we are on to X-Men number 11, with the subtitle, The X-Men vs. The X-Men, again. Jim Lee's final issue of the run. And Miles, you you did some looking around into the backstory of, of Lee's departure, yeah? Um, yeah, on one of our frequent source sites, The Real Gentleman of Leisure, they wrote, Reportedly, Lee was the biggest holdout of the Image Founders but the one the other founders most wanted to get on board because they felt his departure would sting Marvel the most. Ultimately, the thing that finally pushed him out was when Marvel refused to pay to send Lee's wife along to a convention to which they were paying to send him. So, we've talked about this before, but during this period, almost all of the hotshot artists that Marvel had forced out their hotshot writers in favor of left to go found Image Comics. So that was, you know, Todd McFarlane, that was Rob Liefeld, that was, in this case, Jim Lee, a lot of other people. Wills Portacio was one of them. And yeah, Lee was the final one, which means this issue right here is the last pre-Image Exodus finalization issue that we're going to be covering. It's Jim Lee's last issue, and I'm not going to say it's a super weird place to go out on. I mean, Louis Simonson's last issue of X-Factor was the one with all those cybernetic samurai, but it's still kind of anticlimactic and weird. It's definitely a fizzle, not a bang. I mean, and honestly, it feels a little just that it is, considering how Claremont left the title after number three. (laughs) There is that. Well, anyway, plot-wise, in X-Men number 11... All right, so as we mentioned, Dazzler's mysterious savior is none other than Mojo 2, the sequel... And Mojo 2 kind of looks like what you'd get if you gave Arise a makeover based on Mr. Sinister. He's very pale, he's very buff, um, he is slender, he has Arise-style robot limbs, he has uh, cascades of dark curls, he's got a sort of vaguely M-shaped mustache, and he wants to take over the Mojoverse. And he says that he wants to take over the Mojoverse so that he can end the tyranny there, so that he can he can let the, the, the folks with spines rise up to equality, so that he can actually listen to the people, so that he can end Mojo's reign of terror. And if that sounds too good to be true, that's because it is. Yeah, you may recall that we learned in Shattershot that X-Force at one point went into a later time in the Mojoverse and ended up taking down Mojo 5, so clearly things don't really turn around, at least not until Shatterstar decides that he loves love, as opposed to double-bladed swords. Meanwhile, save for Charles Xavier, all of the X-Men not already in the Wizard of Oz scenario have now shown up, brainwashed, and playing very half-assedly kitted up flying monkeys. They're basically just in backpacks with little green bat wings. I really, really miss Alan Davis's Mojoverse, or Alan Davis's Wild Ways. Do you remember that pair of annuals he did, where, like, you know, Psylocke got pulled in there, and there was the thing with Cypher, and the age gap was really weird, but the story was great? Oh, I miss that. I just wish Alan Davis would do anything, but that's kind of like the subtitle of the show at this point, so I guess we don't need to say that again. Alan Davis is so good, and he is, I think, and again, I'm going to keep going back to Brett Blevins for this too, but I feel like between the two of them, they just have such a complete corner on a very specific tone of story. And it's one that results in us comparing every single other person who tries it to them, and no one looks good held up against those two. Like, I feel like Lee could be drawing his little heart out here, and we'd just be like, well, he's trying. 
Yeah, it's true. It's true. But anyway, Professor X, despite being clockwork orange, duh, is able to get in psychic contact with Psylocke and to use her telepathy to link the other X-Men together to resist Mojo's control. All of them except for Wolverine, whom Jubilee snaps back to himself with an impassioned appeal to his toxic masculinity. I mean, I guess if it works, it works, but yeah. Um, also, I, I want to take a moment to shout out to Cyclops' amazing passive-aggressive parent game. Um, at one point, Psylocke has him by the throat and is about to snap his neck, and he just says, You're an adult, Betsy. Do what you think is right. That's our Scotty. Now, altogether, the X-Men are, in fact, able to break through the Mojonium, trademark, reinforced control booth and get to Mojo, and I do want to point out that every time the X-Men say Mojonium, they just say it Mojonium, and every time anybody from the Mojoverse says Mojonium, it's got the little trademark symbol, and in fact, at one point, one of them corrects the X-Men about that, and it's glorious. That's one of those little bits of gold we see in this story. Yeah. Also, Mojo 2, the sequel, insists on being referred to by his full name at all times. He's not just Mojo 2, he is Mojo 2, the sequel. Well, anyway, as we know, all problems can be solved by violence, and so Longshot stabs the crap out of Mojo, and Mojo then explodes, dies, disappears. It's unclear. Mojo 2, the sequel, takes the throne and vows to rule the planet fairly. He won't. And Professor Xavier... Aw, Chuck, again? Really? He once again announces someone's pregnancy without their knowledge or permission. Uh, as you may recall, he did this to Madeline Pryor a very, very, very long time ago. This time it's Dazzler. Yeah, that happens because Charles Xavier doesn't fucking learn. Right. Although there is a nice little bit where Dazzler and Longshot are talking. You just hear Dazzler saying to Longshot, wait, you really want to call him Shatterstar? Which, as it turns out, would be retconned to not be the case and then re-retconned to actually have been the case but their minds were wiped again because i love x-men yeah okay that works now all of the x-men kind of suspect at this point that they haven't really won that there's something else coming but they also just kind of collectively leave it at that and never really follow up on it it's, it's a it's a really odd disjointed ending it is, and as it turns out, not one with a ton of consequences. It turns out Mojo didn't really die, of course, but he's not going to be back for quite a long time. And as for Longshot and Dazzler... Um, as for Longshot and Dazzler, they are pretty much gone until Exiles and New Excalibur. They're going to be gone for a very, very long time. Dazzler will be seen briefly in X-Men 47, um which is where it'll be hinted that she lost the pregnancy. But again, that's going to be retconned back again in X-Factor 259. One of my single favorite continuity masterpieces of all time. The issue stands relatively well alone, so listeners, if you want to just look that up, that's in the uh, second big X-Factor run, or I guess technically the first because they, they renumbered it to match with the first. Anyway, the point is that's the story of Longshot and Shatterstar, and it's goddamn delightful. So what do you think of Longshot, stories centered on Longshot, as a revolutionary figure in the Mojoverse versus stories about Longshot in the 616, in the, in the normal Marvel universe. I mean, I'm not going to call myself the world's biggest Longshot fan. That's actually probably one of our regular commenters on the blog, Ricochet Rita. But I think a lot about Longshot. I, I think a lot about sort of the, the meaning that I find in his powers and in his stories. And for me, 
I'm not saying you can't have him as the revolutionary figure, but for me, the idea of this dude who doesn't know who he is having to define himself and decide what's right and having his powers reinforce how important that is, that self-definition, that morality, that, that ethical action, that works a lot better for me in Fish Out of Water stories. I just keep coming yeah. back to the original miniseries and Nascenti and Art Adams miniseries that's all about that. It's just so thematically pure, which I guess fits with Longshot's powers also. So to just have him be like a badass, be it a badass arena star or a badass revolutionary soldier, it's just less interesting. I think there's a specific midpoint for me that those stories have to hit. I agree with you in general, but... That sense of rebellion and that quest for self-determination and that opposition to injustice have to be really fundamental. I I think a lot of subsequent writers have just kind of written him as sort of a goofy innocent. And that version falls pretty flat for me, honestly. I feel like he's got to have that sort of drive to write and he's got to have that willingness to cross lines to get there. Yeah, you know, that is actually a very good point. You can't go too far in either direction or you lose what works. Longshot best exists in the tension between rebellion and hope, between bitterness and almost naive optimism. That's where you find the core of the character. That's where you find what makes him, I think, an important character. Speaking of important characters, sorry, I couldn't keep that up. Um, these two issues also featured a backup story about Maverick. That's right, it's the hotshot introduced on a trading card star of the 1990s, the squish-nosed, ambiguously-powered Team X affiliate, Maverick. These are two very short chapters, each one at the end of one of the stories that we've covered, and we'll just blaze through them. There are a couple fun points I want to cover, but otherwise, meh. So, these are written by Scott Lobdell, but they're penciled and inked by Mark Texera, whose style I fucking love. Like, everybody's way too muscular, and they have too many lines on their faces, and the explosions are, like, way more explodey than they would be in real life, and the backgrounds are mostly rubble, and I don't know. It's just like if the 90s had sex with the 90s and gave birth to the 90s, and I shouldn't like this, but I do. Sorry, I'm, I'm still on the weird 90s self cess thing. Well, there is that, but, like, I don't know, maybe I just have Stockholm Syndrome, which reminds me, um, Guitar Hero, like, there would be different venues you would play at, and one of them was called the Stockholm Synthdrome, and I always thought that was a really good pun. So, are you more Guitar Hero or Rock Band? I don't know. I mean, I think I like the music overall in Guitar Hero more, and I mostly played the guitar slash bass in those games, you know, the plastic ukuleles that they were, but the, the idea of getting that many people together to play Rock Band, like when we used to do it and you were on drums, that was so much fun, so I don't know. Also, Rock Band has the Proto Men. Rock Band does have the Proto Men, and that makes it, like, easily 13 to 18% cooler. Very good point. Strong selling point. So speaking, speak, oh, full circle. Speaking of ridiculous, gritty, badass, and rubble-filled adventures. Nice. Thank you. Maverick has, as usual, ended up in the middle of a lot of scary guys with guns. He takes them out by dropping a thermite grenade and sealing himself in his very fancy armor, blowing up all of the surrounding fellows, and heading on to his main quest to find scientist Alexander Reiking um, to try to find out what he knows about the missing Xavier file. Now, some of you are no doubt familiar with the phrase Xavier files. The main thing that'll be known as the Xavier files are Charles Xavier's big database of how to kill all the X-Men. This is not that. This is a file about Charles Xavier. Right, exactly. 
Um, I mean, well, sort of. It's complicated. But the point is, Maverick's going after this scientist to kill him. Not to, like, retrieve him, but to actually kill him. Canadian government officials are fucking harsh. Yeah, Canada's really, really brutal. We've gone into this before. But before he kills Reiking, he wants to find out how the file got out. And he suspects, or his bosses suspect, that Reiking knows. Fortunately for Reiking, and unfortunately for Maverick, Reiking's got a bodyguard, and boy does he ever. This is a fellow with an amazing kind of Guile-style flat top, but in black, um, Colossus's shiny skin, tiny panties, and a huge Punisher belt buckle, generally decked out in a Santa Claus color scheme. Now, if you've been reading X-Men for a long time, you probably still won't know who the fuck this guy is. And in fact, the caption, the editorial caption just says, Hmm? Dash Bob Harris. Like, that's, that's less why than Why would you do that, Bob? What the well, hell? It turns out this villain is the infamous Warhawk. You remember the guy who sabotaged the Danger Room in Uncanny X-Men number 110? A villain issue that was so boring that we summarized it in like one sentence and then skipped on to the next one? Yeah, that's this guy. I was gonna say, bet you wish we'd covered it in more depth, but you really don't. Now you know. At least we do get Maverick attempting to be Cable. Okay, you're so eager to mambo with Maverick? Fine. I lead. I give that like a B minus, maybe? At best. Anyway, that takes us to the second chapter of this, with another great Maverick line to open it up. You can't be dead. Yet. I've still got more bullets left. Well, I can't argue with that logic. So there's a fight, and uh, Maverick manages to uh, shoot bolts into the same dents that he shot with bullets into Warhawk's metal skin, which, I mean, okay? That is very impressive marksmanship. Sure is. Well done, Maverick. Well done. It turns out Alex Reiking has no clue how Xavier got the Xavier file, and then Warhawk explodes because he's got holes in him and something something energy something, and everybody dies except Maverick, who goes away to brood. I assume that's what he's off to do. I mean, he he talks about just sort of generally hating himself as he wanders off. That comes out of absolutely nowhere. Um, and that's that. And I guess that's how you find out that there is a file that Charles Xavier has in the next issue, in case you don't want to get all the way to like the fourth or fifth page of the next issue to find that out. So a number of listeners when Maverick first showed up were like, oh, Miles is going to love this character so much. And I want to love this character so much. I mean, he's got a great, ridiculous design. He's very, very badass. He's got a mysterious past, and I do enjoy that. There are a lot of retcons involved, but like, I don't know. Like, the execution, despite the fact that there are many executions, uh, doesn't land for me most of the time. I like that he calls himself David during fights. I would like it more if that weren't his name. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, that takes us to the second story we'll be covering with X-Men number 12, Broken Mirrors. We have a different writer now. We are back to Fabian Nicesa, which I'm kind of glad of. I feel like he's got a much better grasp on the X-Men at this point. Art by Art Thibert, um, with Dan Pinojian and Trevor, and Trevor Scott. I really like Art Thibert's art. Or Art Thibert. Um, art, if you're listening, please tell us how to say your name. Um, it's a mostly 90s house style, so it's super muscular, but he's really good at making all of that expressive. Like, it feels 90s, but in a way that I enjoy. He also draws good explosions, which is a really critical skill for this particular arc. Sure is. We open at the Reiking Hospital for Parahuman Research, also called, according to a caption, The Betty Ford Clinic for Rich Superfolk. Nice. 
In this clinic, the surprisingly muscular staff runs toward the source of an alarm, or possibly just some person yelling, MRAP, over and over again, which, I mean, that's kind of what our cat sounds like, so that seems plausible. I don't see why it can't be both. It turns out the source of the MRAP-ing is Carter Riking. Hey, from the cold open. Wait, she is just yelling MRAP? Um, it's ambiguous, so I'm gonna assume, probably, he is a surprisingly muscular patient in a surprisingly tiny hospital gown or surprisingly long t-shirt, exploding with energy and Kirby dots, just like his side-by-side flashbacked child self did years ago. And adult Carter's uh, sudden energy overload was triggered by the news that his father, Alexander, had died. As a child, he was sedated by the staff. This time, the staff just straight up tases him. His only weakness, tasers. Well, I mean, I guess tasers are most people's weakness. He's got a lot of weaknesses. That's true, he's just sort of a dude who can do confusing plasma things. Anyway, the tasers work, and so Carter is unconscious. He dreams about being sedated and restrained as a boy, and that dream wakes him up to blow up half the hospital and also most of his hospital gown, but not his invincible briefs, apparently. So take a drink. But I guess don't eat the cherry at the bottom, or olive, or lime, whatevs. Or butt. Um, yes. Don't eat the butt. Unless you want to. At the bottom of your drink. Right. You're, I, like, what the hell is going on in your bar? Seriously, that's, that's weird. Maybe it's the princess bar from Madripoor. That place is very strange. But, as it were, Carter then channels his plasma energy, which is such a generically 90s power, through the orderly's taser wires back to them, burning them all to surprisingly intact skeletons. The skeletons are also a pleasing shade of pink. Do you think that's part of his mutant power or just a coincidence? I'd like to think that it's part of his power set, but I have also been rereading the um, Wayward Children books, so I may be biased to, toward Technicolor skeletons at the moment. Legit. Well, Carter, having murdered everybody in sight, flies off, which I guess is also part of his power set, to find out why his now-dead dad had him locked up. He brings, along with his tiny invincible briefs, the taser wires that are stuck in him, I guess just because he forgot they were there. Well, they'll factor in later, so cool. Man, this guy is is part of such a weirdly specific trope, which is the superpowered, locked up by dad, or very occasionally mom, unstable super mutant. Yeah, the main example I was thinking of was, was Proteus, and that was a mom there, but same kind of deal, it's true. You've got Proteus, you've got Legion, you've got... Eleven, you've got Artie, you've got how many others? I, I mean, one one of those things was not like the others because one of those things was from Stranger Things and not the X-Men. But my point is that this is a trope that, that spans references, although I guess Stranger Things is really X-Men referential, so. It even references that one Dark Phoenix issue. I, I giggled aloud at that part, as I recall. Good job. Well, back at the X-Mansion, let's have some character development. I mean, let's genuinely have some character development. Like, I love this stuff. Nicieza is super solid. Like you were saying, he totally rules this tiny bit of this era, and a lot of other bits of the era, too. And not only that, but Rogue and Gambit have a pretty good conversation. Gambit establishes and understands limits. I'm so proud of him. So this is a Rogue-Gambit conversation. Well, I'll see what I can do. I believe in you. Nice view. Was that a statement or a question? Take your pick. Ah, old habits. No flirting here. I was meaning to have a word with you, ne? About what's been going on and all. 
Me talking to you about my wife, Belladonna. You telling me how you really feel about that long shot boy. Listen, Cajun. Remy. I don't know what I'm feeling, sugar. I don't know what's gonna happen between us. Just gonna wait and see which way the wind blows. Yeah, as you may recall, Rogue and Longshot had flirted on, a, on and off in the outback and gone roller skating together, and there really, there hadn't been, there, there had been meaningful glances, but not much beyond that. Honestly, the most romantic tension between them was when it was the ex-babies version of them. That's upsetting. Kind of. Well, as that's going on, Beast is driving Psylocke off to visit her brother Captain Britain in England and to be an Excalibur. And like in the old days, like used to be the case with Wolverine before he was everywhere, she's actually going to be gone from X-Men while she's in Excalibur, and I appreciate that. Good job, Continuity. Cyclops is, is watching from the window, holding a picture of Jean while thinking what are presumably supposed to be impure thoughts about Betsy, and this is... Such a weird, uncomfortable subplot because it feels so shoehorned in. It totally does. I mean, don't get me wrong, Psylocke's attractive, but this is 90s X-Men. Everybody's attractive. Well, and I feel like this could have been... You You could have done this story and you could have done it more organically. And I think, I mean, Grant Morrison did a very different version of it much more organically. But this, like, this very much, every time it comes up, it sort of feels like cyclops mugging at the camera and saying a line in a in 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 a perfect monotone like it's it's that degree of of just sort of discordant what's much better than that is xavier who's running jubilee through a danger room simulation against the current brotherhood of evil mutants and for the most part it is delightful as is jubilee i hate the danger room i hate the danger room i'm sweating i'm sweating i hate sweating stay away from me dino riders reject as she zaps Sauron, but then she's confronted by the blob, and, like, he kisses her forcefully, and god damn it, Charlie, you literally programmed this. Why would you do that? Wolverine interrupts the session. He is also super pissed off, although not at what's going on in the danger room. He is extremely angry because he was rifling through Xavier's papers looking for more info about his mysterious past, Logan's, not Xavier's, and he found a secret file about Xavier's dad that, in Logan's words... Reeks of the same garbage pile my own past does. Jubilee is incredulous that paper had been invented in 1964, but in fact, Jubilee antecedents of modern paper were invented in the early 2nd century CE. And knowing is half the battle. Now, if you want to learn more about what these papers probably involve, you can check out the Shiva scenario storyline. We covered that in episode 176. Now... Xavier tells Logan that he, in fact, received the file six weeks ago with no follow-up and basically set it aside and ignored it. The files apparently say that the Alamogordo Nuclear Research Facility job, that is Xavier's dad's job, was actually a cover for government studies on mutation. Wow, that's, that's a hell of a cover-up. So what Alamogordo is mostly known for... IRL is is as the site of the Trinity nuclear test, which, yeah, I guess nuking the hell out of a site is a pretty good cover-up as such things go. Now, I was talking about this storyline with friend of the podcast and friend of us, Harrison Barber, and Harrison pointed out that Charles's dad is Brian Xavier, right? Charles's son is David Holler, so BCD. Does that mean that Charles's grandfather was like Adam or Anthony? Would that just keep going? What's going on there? Um... Paradolia, I think, is what's going on. There is meaning in all things! All things! As I established a while ago, comics creators have planned out every single detail, and there are no accidents and no bad decisions. Wow. Um, okay. 
At least that's what I thought when I was a kid. I've been um, somewhat disillusioned in subsequent years. Anyway, this was a big deal back in the Silver Age. I mean, the X-Men were the children of the Atom, right? The whole deal was that mutation was starting to happen because of all of this ongoing atomic research. The fact that, you know, it was the atomic age. And then at some point, people realized that radiation didn't so much give people superpowers as a lot of cancer. That's, that's way worse. It really, really is. Um, and in fact, that's what happened to most of the people who had been in the vicinity of the Trinity's test site and a number of generations of people dr- born in nearby cities afterwards. Mm, no telepaths, eh? Not so much. That's a shame. Well, our telepath, Professor Xavier, actually goes to Alexander Reiking's funeral. You know, the Alexander that was shot by Maverick very thoroughly, or I guess blown up by Maverick very thoroughly. And there's actually some examination here of the difficulties of being in a regular wheelchair in a place with hills, because, you know, Xavier's hover chair would have been too conspicuous. We get a little bit of intersectionality, so well done this comic. The intersectionality only lasts until Carter Reiking attacks the funeral. He has shown up in the... In not the shreds of his tiny hospital gown, but a new suit of fancy circuited armor. It's very Portasio-esque, yeah. It's like white and yellow and pink and there's circuitry all over it. The cops, of course, draw guns, leading Carter to soliloquize. Look at you, so quick to shoot your weapons. At least in that you do his memory justice. Go ahead and shoot. Do to me with your army what my father did with science. Try to take my life away from me. Well, the cops may or may not try, but Carter just skeletonizes the hell out of them using the taser strands that are now part of his awesome pink and yellow and white costume, at which point he mind links with Professor Xavier. It was Carter who sent Xavier the file, and Carter who wants help getting his life back. They were childhood buds back in the day, so he figured he would turn to everyone's favorite telepath with questionable judgment. I guess plasma is the new magnetism? It kind of is in the 90s. Well, Xavier doesn't want anybody else to get turned into a skeleton. I mean, I guess they were already all skeletons, but, like, doesn't want anyone to get turned into just a skeleton. You could even say that the skeletons were inside them all along. Yes, you could. That's metal as hell. That takes us to our final issue, X-Men number 13, Hazardous Territory. Once again, by Nicieza and Fibert, with art assists by Dan Panosian. Okay, this cover is amazing, because clearly Carter is supposed to be just holding Xavier up by his head... But the proportions are a little off, and what it ends up looking like is that Carter has removed Xavier's head, but the rest of Xavier's body is still somehow dangling below the hand holding the head up. It's a little disturbing, it's true. But instead of the, uh, you know, decapitation, we get little snippets of Charles and Carter's childhood friendship in the shadow of their father's nuclear and or mutant-related research. Now... This is eventually going to be developed in a lot more detail and with a very uh, sinister twist, specifically in X-Men Legacy, in which these guys will all turn out to have been caught up in a branch of Weapon X. God, what isn't Weapon X responsible for? Not a lot. Well, Carter's pretty pissed off because Xavier keeps denying Carter's accounts of what happened. He ignored the file he got. I mean, what the hell, Chuck? Yeah, Charles is the guy going, these terrible things can't have happened to you because I didn't notice them at the time and I don't really want to believe that. And I'm really angry at Charles Xavier this arc for a lot of reasons. Meanwhile, the X-Men were only a step behind and they arrive. Wolverine is still pretty fucked up about whatever it is he saw in the file, presumably the weapon X-Link. But fortunately, Rogue is there to talk him down and get his head out of, its, out of his own ass. 
Yeah, she calls him out on his whole nobody understands my pain thing. I mean, she's had other identities layered over hers too, like a lot. She's been through some shit also. She's done some stuff she regrets also. And Logan, to his credit, backs down. He recognizes Rogue's point. This is what Nassiez is really good at. Good at not just having the characters talk in their own voices, but act in the ways they would act in situations they haven't been in before. Where you can say, okay, yeah, I've never seen you know this interaction between Wolverine and Rogue, but that is indeed how it would go down. Yeah, once he's really caught into the strident of voices, we get from Nisiez, I think, much more three-dimensional versions of the characters than we're getting from from other writers at this point. And it's really nice. It's It feels connected, and it feels... It makes sense as X-Men in ways that, that they haven't in a little while. Absolutely. Well, there's still time in this pointless, as Beast points out, fight for some glorious banter. Carter starts out... Children of Xavier, we are not enemies. We are all of one brotherhood, one blood. We are kin to pain and suffering, mirrors to isolation and degradation. Bub, the only thing we have in common is that we're all still standing up. In a minute, we won't even have that. Carter is effectively countering everything the X-Men throw at him. He seems to have some kind of telepathic powers or access to Xavier's. It's never quite clear which. But finally, Cyclops manages to blast the uh, quote-unquote taser firing mechanism on Carter's arms, which turns out to be Carter's only means for releasing his plasma surges, and he explodes. Oops. Well, that's convenient and confusing. It turns out it's okay. Uh, Xavier possibly helps him control the explosion or possibly Carter's able to on its on his own or possibly it just happens to miss the X-Men but whichever of those happens and it's fairly unclear everyone's fine and they decide that there's nothing there and they should probably instead search the places where Xavier's dad lived not where he died which is bad logic because he also lived at this research facility for a really long time before dying there but who knows and they also totally miss the pages of a Shiva scenario report that is fluttering right in the foreground of the panel as the X-Men leave for the readers to see. I don't know that the Shiva scenario part is really followed up on all that much, except in as much as Mr. Sinister and Weapon X are behind everything. But what can you do? I mean, you can look at your immediate surroundings. You could do that, it's true. As all this has been going on, though, the X-Mansion hasn't been completely boring, despite what Jubilee might say, because she gets a phone call. Or I guess a video call. Yeah, so she is getting a call from Sam Guthrie from Cannonball, who, when he learns that no non-Jubilee X-Men are around, declines to leave a message. So that, that doesn't really quite go anywhere. Well, it has to do with some of the, some more of the lead-up for Executioner's song, but it does let us see Thybert's cannonball, and I really love the way this artist draws Sam. It kind of reminds me yeah. of, Blev- of Blevins or McFarlane's take. Like, he's real lanky. He doesn't just look like a normal dude. Like, he is that Sam Guthrie, and it's fun. And he always looks super worried, which is an important cannonball characteristic. Now, that's not the only thing going on while the X-Men are dealing with Carter, because outside of Istanbul, Rusty and Skids who long ago left to join the Mutant Liberation Front, return to Strife with an artifact they've just retrieved. It looks like a beach towel, but it's not. It's actually an old scroll featuring someone Strife describes as the devil who haunts his dreams. Which, I, let's, just, just, let's just do the whole Strife speech. It's so good. The sinner of time. Like a rip woven into the fabric of man's destiny. A thread that, when unraveled, will tear mankind. 
and inevitably mutant kind asunder. I shall steal his past the way he has stolen my future. One piece of flesh, one slice of soul at a time. Um, Apocalypse. It's a picture of Apocalypse. It totally is. Now, we mentioned that Rusty and Skids were the one that stole this beach towel. I gotta say, as drawn by this artist as much as I like Thybert, Skids' wardrobe has suffered a real downgrade. Like, she used to be all stylish and fashionable and awesome, and now she's just sort of super generic. Usually that's the opposite of what happens when people go villain. I know, right? Rusty's boring here, but, I mean, let's face it, Rusty always dressed kind of boring. And that is the last we're going to see of X-Men before Executioner's Song. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Alan asks via email, What are good Spider-Man, Avengers, Captain America, and Thor comics that you recommend? So, we can answer one of those pretty, pretty definitely. Um, but the rest are books that we've followed on and off but aren't nearly as conversant with as we are with X-Men. However, we know that a lot of listeners are, so we're going to crowdsource this question. Um, Alan, check the comments for this episode. And listeners, if you've got recommendations for Alan um, for runs on Spider-Man, The Avengers, Captain America, or Thor, drop those in our comments and let him know. Well, Jay, I've got recommendations as far as Thor. In fact, it's going to be really hard to limit this to one answer, but let me just go for my top three. So, one of the greatest runs of comics of all time, period, is Walter Simonson's astonishing 80s run of The Mighty Thor that I spent last summer talking about on a different show. Word. Uh, Highly recommended, easy to find in trade paperbacks, and it's just some of the best comics you will ever, ever read. So over-the-top and epic. Jason Aaron's run, which is going on right now, and just wrapped up its second major multi-year segment where Jane Foster was Thor and was fucking great, that's about to start its third one with a brand new artist, a brand new premise, and presumably still the same level of quality. Really epic, lots of great continuity, give you chills every freaking issue. The previous artist on it, I think, was uh, Russell Dodderman, whom you've heard on this podcast in context of his work on the Cyclops ongoing series. Absolutely. So also highly recommended and still going, which is convenient. And if you want just a nice little self-contained run, Thor the Mighty Avenger, I don't know that I have smiled so hard reading a comic ever. It's all the charisma and it's all the heart you would ever want from Thor crammed into eight perfect issues. That book ended too soon, but it ended well and you should totally read it. So there are my Thor top three. Ask me next time and I might have different answers, but probably not. Michael... Heidi, and sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, it's one long word, asks on Tumblr, has Rusty ever had the codename Firefist in the comics? Ah, I see you've seen Deadpool 2. Um, okay, so as far as I know, Rusty was actually only called Firefist in the comics once. That was an X-Factor number 22, and nobody actually called him Firefist. That was just like the label on the anti-mutant power helmet that Cameron Hodges' anti-mutant group, The Right, put on his head. He's also been called Firefist in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and trading cards and stuff like that a bunch, but I don't know that any character has ever actually said the name Firefist in any of the comics, unless I'm forgetting something. I feel like that's entirely reasonable of them. It's, it's not a great code name. It's really not a great code name. What is great are our amazing patrons who help us, you know, make the show actually happen. Certain levels of support on Patreon come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's go ahead and start with the angry Claremontian narrator this time. Greg Matasevich. Again. You'd think once was enough, 
or twice, but here you are, once more sifting through the ruins of your former life, wondering how much of what you thought you knew was mere illusion. At least Michael Gagan has the sense to remain in blithe denial. Although it's really only a matter of time until he, too, finds himself subject to his own set of retcons. And now, of course, the mic goes to Mojo. Major Domo! What anti-brained protoplasm thought it would get ratings to just throw the X-Men into an Earth film without so much as a costume change? Whose idea was... mine? That is brilliant! Perfect! But I can't stop here! Spiral! Fetch me my new stars! Shiny, blood-red stars! Get Sam Keeley, aka Sammy Blade, I love it, into makeup! I want all the drama in his brains and guts on every screen in the Mojoverse! Arise! Set down those delightfully horrifying sex machines and give Justo an exoskeleton fit for the arena! I want blood! I want guts! I want love and hate and sex and violence and product placement! Give me time! Give me space! Give me everything! So, uh, you did a callback to Sexy Arise, huh? That's one of my favorite things I've ever done in my entire life. Don't judge me. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, X-Factor takes on two new teams of villains, each a worse pun than the last. Preceded by a brief musical interlude. over the rainbow, way up high. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby.